Hey everybody, AJ Venegas here, Director of Life Groups and Discipleship here at Three Crosses. And today we get to unpack how you are either male or female. I know what you're thinking, how controversial, right? But really the conversation today is inescapable. It's right there in our key poem for this entire series. Genesis 1 verse 27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female, God created them. This means that there's something about our gender and sexuality that is so fundamental to who we are that it reaches the level of imaging God himself. So how exactly does this image of God concept relate to issues concerning gender and sexuality? Well, get ready, because today we're going to be diving into this hot topic issue. And let me preface the conversation by saying this. If this is a topic that you're struggling with, my challenge for you would be to open a dialogue with a pastor or staff member here at Three Crosses. We'd be more than happy to have a discussion with you. And then finally, stick with me through the end of this episode, because I pray that you're going to hear a loving expression of the Christian worldview on these matters as I seek to emphasize what we are for rather than shaming anyone with what we are against. So without further ado, receive this message in God's love and truth. In our culture today, Many of us are told that the truest version of ourselves is found by aligning our lives with that inner voice deep inside of us. We search our inner self to discover that inner voice and act upon those inner desires. Thus, the ultimate virtue of our society is being quote-unquote authentic, expressing who we really are on the inside. So if we know what the ultimate virtue is, I'm wondering if you can guess what the ultimate societal sin is. If I'm supposed to live out my truth derived from my inner authentic self, then telling someone that their inner self is misguided and then suggesting that they should not actually live out their quote unquote authentic self becomes equivalent to a direct attack on an individual. It's even been elevated to the level of violence. That's why conversations like the one we're about to engage in have inevitably sparked intense emotions. Telling someone that you are either male or female pierces the inner conscience of many in our culture today. It cuts directly against those deeply rooted desires telling someone that they are really a male trapped in a female's body, a female trapped in a man's body. They're beyond the scope of a simplistic, outdated binary derived from an ancient book of religion, or that their identity is primarily found in their sexual attractions. Are you catching the importance of this issue here? The conversations around sexual and gender identity have sunk down to the deepest why levels of our existence. So what do we say as Christians? And how can the church respond to these conversations with the importance, delicacy, and love that it deserves? 
Well, as we've been learning in this series, since we know we've been made in the image of God, a good starting point for this conversation is understanding that we've been fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalm 139. We've been brought to life by the breath of God and fashioned intentionally by the artisan king from the dust of the ground, Genesis 2. Since we know that there's this level of intentionality in what God designs from the dust, many thought leaders in the church lead off with arguments based on something called natural law. In these natural law arguments, we appeal directly to basic biology, pointing out that since there is a natural order within God's creative work, we adamantly suggest that there's simply no refutation down to the basics of chromosomes, that on a biological level, there is a binary distinction between male and female. So what about the rare cases of people born with the outward genitalia of both sexes? Well, these rare cases do not mean that there is a different third sex out there. It means that we experience deformities in this fallen world, and that even though someone might be born with abnormal chromosome features and both outward genital expressions, the traditional XX or XY dominant chromosomes win out over time. Now, while these natural law arguments might all be true, Let me point out that everything that I have argued so far is about what's on the outside. Natural law arguments may be rationally true, but do they truly move someone's inner spirit? Do they speak to that inner conscience that has become the dominant force in our culture? I only point this out because no matter how logical the natural law arguments are, we've already seen that those experiencing difficulty with gender and sexuality hold on to the notion that this outer body only serves to cater the true, internal, authentic self, and we end up talking past one another. Flourishing, according to our culture, is when our outward expressions match our more important inner experience even if that means altering our body. Which is why the next step this conversation usually takes focuses on the internal. The argument that humans experience different inner quote-unquote genders or gender expressions that fall along some sort of spectrum. And typically this argument receives a response saying that, well, these temperaments or personalities may in fact vary across men and women, But it doesn't mean that the inner self ever can override our embodied biological binary. And so we know these arguments can go on and on. But let me zoom out for a second. While arguments from natural law, science, and biology all on this outward plane have their place. Because they adequately explain how God determined the natural order of things. I've come to the belief that in order to truly move the needle in someone's life, we're in desperate need of a deeper explanation as to why God chose to create humans as males and females. The how may be convincing for some, but in order for someone to actually make a sacrifice to die to themselves and abandon their inner authentic self in order to conform to God's order found in biology, 
They're going to need a good reason why our embodied reality as males and females actually matters. Sure enough, this biblical discussion about the image of God arms the Christian with a rather convincing why. Throughout the New Testament, Paul routinely returns to this pre-fall relationship between Adam and Eve found in Genesis 1 and 2 whenever he wants to comment on the male and female binary. To pull from one example, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul opens this corrective conversation with the Corinthian church about their use of head coverings. Now, we can only speculate as to the precise symbolic significance of these cloth head coverings. But what Paul understands is that the use of head coverings communicated something significant about the sexes and their roles in the Corinthian culture. So, Paul tells the Corinthians that when women pray or prophesy in the religious gathering, they ought to wear a head covering. Whereas when men pray or prophesy, Paul commands them not to cover their heads. So what gives? Well, Paul explicitly tells us the core principle behind his concerns for head coverings. First, Paul states that our goal as the church is to communicate that God is the head or the authority over all things, including men. Thus, the male is called to honor his higher authority, in this case, God himself, in the way he presents himself. This is why men were instructed to not wear head coverings when expressing their faith in public. Again, for whatever reason and significance of the head covering. But then, Paul goes on to say that the other message that needs to be communicated is that man is in fact the head, or the authority, over the woman. Thus, the woman is called to honor her higher authorities, in this case, both man and God, in the ways she presents herself. In Paul's view, this is why women should, in fact, wear head coverings while practicing their faith in public. Again, for whatever reason and significance of the head covering. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Paul is concerned about the head coverings because they were outwardly communicating something critical about the distinction between males and females. And Paul believes that these differences from our binary here are derived from the image of God concept found in Genesis 1 and 2. In 1 Corinthians 11 verses 8 through 9, he says, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now, I know this argument seems completely against our culture, but we have to humbly admit that this attempt to preserve these sexed differences based on the Genesis 1 and 2 order is a rather consistent pattern throughout the scriptures. This is the reason why the role of pastor and elder in the church have been reserved for virtuous men who use their authority to care for the people they lead as they surrender their lives to Jesus, the chief shepherd. You can see 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. But we're not talking about a cultural fad found in the first century because Paul argues that this authority is reserved for males because, quote, 
Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam wasn't deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. That's 1 Timothy 2 verse 13. Paul is saying that the distinct roles of men and women, males and females, are fundamental and worthy to be preserved. And like Adam and Eve came together in marriage at the end of Genesis 2, this fundamental male-female distinction is most clearly expressed in the marriage relationship. We see in places like 1 Peter 3 or Ephesians 5, Scripture is commanding the wife to submit under the authority of the husband while commissioning the husband to wield his authoritative position to lay down his life for the well-being of his wife. Okay, you may or may not be convinced of this pattern that the scriptures are laying out here. But if this is true, then what exactly is the why of creating humans with this male and female binary? And why is Paul working so hard to preserve these distinctions? Here's a thought experiment for you. Let's say that we do in some way resemble the God who created us. We, in fact, do cast a shadow of what God is like. In other words, we do image God, like we've been arguing in this series. And to any skeptics out there, let's entertain the idea that this God whom we image exists as a trinity. God the Father and God the Son, with God the Holy Spirit proceeding from them both. Now, I want to be clear here. I know there is no analogy adequate enough to explain the Trinity, but hear me out here because I think we were meant to get close by looking at his human image bearers. Follow me here. In the same way, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal in terms of substance, essence, or being, so too the male and the female are equally human. The man was created from the dust, and the woman was created out of the rib of the man. And because they're equal, they share equal dignity as images of God. You know, a common question I hear from other religions who oppose the idea of a trinity is how exactly can multiple distinct beings simultaneously be classified as one? Easy. All we have to do is look at humans who are two distinct beings, male and female, but are simultaneously equally considered to be one human race. You know, these are the reasons why Jesus can say, I and the Father are one. But wait, it gets better. Because within the relationship of the Trinity, the Father takes a primary headship role to which the Son and the Spirit humbly and willingly submit. If you have any doubt about this, our key passage in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3 says as much. It says, the head of Christ is God. And Jesus also hints at this, saying things like, the Father is greater than I. So if this is all true, doesn't it make logical sense then that God's image bearers have been created with equal worth and dignity as the race of human beings? But males and females at the same time share different roles in relationship to one another? 
a binary in which one party is the head and the other, while entirely equal, is called to humbly submit. And as we saw at the end of Genesis 2, the volume of this relational dynamic gets turned up to 10 in the covenant relationship that we call marriage. Two equal image-bearing human beings, male and female, possessing different roles who lovingly submit to one another, bound together forever by what our culture calls the spirit of love. Are you starting to see this beautiful picture of our Trinitarian God emerging right before our very eyes? Because you see, the fact that you are either male or female is at its core a beautiful image of God himself. I hope that's beginning to sink in a little bit because think of the implications here. The fact that men and women are created with equal dignity in the image of God means that men and women alike are equally welcomed into God's family. Galatians 3.28 says that in the kingdom community, there is no class, no sex, no social distinction that can hinder us from the love of God. We are all welcomed as restored image bearers. Our key passage in 1 Corinthians 11 verses 11 through 12 hints at this, suggesting that males and females need each other. For as woman was made from man, so man is born of woman. And all things are from God. At the same time, I think we ought to take a page from the Corinthian church and learn to celebrate our differences as the binary sex beings that we are. Not only based on our biological hardwiring, but because we as Christians are extraordinarily passionate about imaging the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to our community. Are you catching the implications here? When we lean into and not run away from our general biological differences and we celebrate the roles they afford us, the church begins to act in a way that images God himself. Wouldn't it be amazing if people struggling with these issues revolving around gender and sexuality can simply observe how men and women act here on our Three Crosses Hill and begin to recapture what it means to live as a man and what it means to live as a woman? How critical is this witness amidst a culture that has all but thrown these concepts out of the window? We have an amazing opportunity to become the pillar and buttress of truth to the East Bay. We have the opportunity to become a community that doesn't promote toxic masculinity or toxic feminism, but promotes a culture of mutual love and submission as equally dignified human beings and a culture that preserves these distinct roles we have been given as males and females. When you start with the why, that you were created male and female to image God. And then you add on the biological how arguments that your body is fearfully and wonderfully made from the perfect creator who intricately wove you together in your mother's womb. You begin to realize that God did not make a mistake when he gave you a male or a female body. He's done everything on purpose. He's created you on purpose. Yet, as we've discussed, 
We've all fallen into sin, paving the way for abnormal deformities and chemical imbalances found in our body, as well as temptations and thoughts in our minds that inspire us to align our lives to what we think is our good purpose, to live by our inner self, our inner authentic self, rather than aligning our lives around God's purpose of imaging him. If you're struggling with this concept at all, my prayer for you in this episode is that you'll take every thought that you have captive and begin to ask those thoughts this garden-like question. Will I move forward trusting my own limited understanding of what is true, of what brings flourishing in my life? Or... Will I trust the God of the universe's vision of right and wrong? This God who loves me, this God who has formed me in my mother's womb, this God who knows me, and this God who loves me deeply. I want to end here with this million dollar question. What can we do to glorify God as men and women? While my aim isn't to generalize here, I do believe that the scriptures do in fact provide this common brushstroke that we need to answer this type of question. Hopefully now you're seeing that part of God's beautiful design was to give men a particular physical body. And so glorifying him then is embracing this male body that's been given to you. And according to 1 Corinthians 11, preserving the distinction embedded into our bodies by clearly communicating that you are a male by the way you present yourself. Furthermore, in 1 Timothy 2 verse 8, Paul says that he desires, quote, that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Scripture encourages men along these lines. Use your inner urge to fight for something purposeful to pursue a virtuous life and then lead whoever has been placed in your life into the kingdom of God. Use your drive to daily surrender to the Lordship of Christ. Expend your energy to pray on the front lines of the spiritual war waging inside and outside of the church. Lay down your life for your wives and become first by becoming last whether we're single, married, or shoulder any authority in God-ordained institutions, such as the family and the church. In the same way, women have also been given a particular body. And so according to this episode, women can glorify God by embracing their female body and preserving the distinction between males and females by clearly communicating that you are a woman by the way you present yourself. In the next verses in that 1 Timothy 2 passage, Paul says, quote, Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. The pattern in scripture for women is to adorn yourselves with virtuous characteristics and deeds that reflect the work and service of Christ, who, even though, remember, he shared equality with the Father, 
he wholly submitted to the will of the Father. Now, while women are not called to submit to every male in every situation, across the scriptures we find that women are called to at least recognize that there is a difference and that males have this urge and ability to want to lead and want to fight for something. But submit to the males within the institutions in which God expects men to lead. That means the family and the church. Again, see Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3, Colossians 3, or in passages like we broke down today in 1 Corinthians 11. Essentially, this means that women are called to glorify God by doing anything and everything they feel called to do outside of these institutions. You've got the green light. Go for it. But inside of these God-ordained institutions, the leadership rests with the male elder. The leadership rests with the husband, who both carry the fatherly role of shouldering the final weight of authority. In the church, this often means that you will see a male elder in the highest authoritative contexts, like Sunday morning. You'll see a male elder having the final say on the church's theological content. And finally, you'll see a male elder representing the church when a proclamation of confidence needs to be made. Women are called to submit to this authoritative position in their lives, but also support the church by using their gifts in all other areas with a special focus on training other young women, Titus 2, and leaning into your ability to create and nurture new life, both physically and spiritually, 1 Timothy 2 verse 15. And in so doing, in preserving these male and female distinctions here, the church bears witness to who God is. And as I said before, the volume of all of these concepts is turned up to a maximum in the marriage relationship. I'll leave it up to you who are married to discern what it looks like for you as a wife to submit to your husband just as the church submits to Christ. And I'll leave it up to you to see what it looks like for you as a husband to lay down your life for your wife as Christ gave his life for the church. But I want to leave you with one final image here. In the marriage relationship, we have the male whose authority, we argued, images God the Father. In this marriage relationship, we also have a woman whose submission, we argued, images God the Son. These two entities, male and female, come together in the spirit of a loving covenant relationship, possibly imaging the Holy Spirit. Again, I want to be clear, no analogy will ever suffice to explain the Trinity. But doesn't it totally make sense for new life to be the result of this marriage? Doesn't it totally make sense for new life to be created out of nothing within the Trinity relationship? Tomorrow, we're going to talk about how humans bear the image of a life-giving, procreative God. We'll see you then. <laughs>